Jesus and his disciples went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi! Judas kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the ear, the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled.
They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, saying, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him.
While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Peter went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of Jews? Pilate knew that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified.
The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see who would get what. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charges against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him along with among themselves. He saves others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified him with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let us see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God.
I'm assuming that many of us have been in a funeral. And there is something unique about being in a funeral. See, a funeral is one of those things in which you find it acceptable and expected to grieve or to mourn or to lament, especially if you have lost a loved one. But in addition to that, there's something unique about a funeral because it is acceptable and expected for us to be confronted with the reality of death. It's almost expected and acceptable to take the time to think that it doesn't matter how much we tried, what we do, how much we conquered, how successful we are, how healthy we are, at the end of the day, we all will face the same thing, death. There's something that a funeral, there's something in a funeral that does that for us. I wonder if this is the reason why uh, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says this. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Isn't that interesting? It is better to be in a funeral because it reminds us of our destiny. Of something that is inescapable. The reality that you and I one day will have to face death. And someone would say, what does that have to do with Good Friday? How about if I tell you that Good Friday is kind of a, a, an image of the ultimate funeral. In which we are reminded that God in Jesus our Savior came to die for our sins. A funeral in which we remember that the all-powerful, eternal God became a human being to die. But in addition to that, Good Friday is not just like a funeral because we remember that Jesus died. But it is in this funeral where we know and remember and embrace the one thing we need to face our death. See, in this funeral that we remember every year called Good Friday, we both remember that Jesus died, and at the same time, we are embracing the one thing that we need to face our death. So today, I'm going to spend a few minutes in Hebrews chapter 2. I'm actually going to be looking into two verses alone. I want you to pay attention to what the author of the book of Hebrews says here. Starting in verse 14, he says, since the children have flesh and blood, meaning you and I, he too shared in their humanity, so by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all, um, who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. So a couple of things that I want you to see in this text. Number one, that the author of the book of Hebrews assumes that most likely everyone struggles with the fear of death. And I'm going to make the argument that he might be true, that he might be right. That every single one of us, whether we admit it or not, at one point or at one time, we are going to struggle with the fear of death. That's why it is the last thing that he says in verse 15. That there's something about death that makes us tremble. What I want to do for the next few minutes then is to share with you some of the reactions that people have when we talk about the fear of death. And I, what I invite you to do is for you to do a self-assessment if that's how you react or what your attitude is when you think about death. And if you are actually controlled by the fear of death. So there are three primary reactions. Either we try to normalize it, or we paralyze by it, or we become a slave of it. See, for those of us that, for, for example, when we think about the fear of death, uh, have the tendency to normalize it, is we talk about death like if it's no big deal, like if it's not, nothing wrong with it. 
Oh, we just cease to exist, people would say. And I would say, is that helpful? I don't think it's helpful for two main reasons. Number one, if to die is normal, then unintentionally we are saying that to struggle with pain is normal. And if we struggle with pain, and to struggle with, with pain is normal, then there is no room to grieve. And that, my brothers and sisters, not being able to grieve dehumanizes you. There's something in our humanity that requires that we grieve, especially if we have lost a loved one. Dying is not normal. Actually, my second argument is that to try to normalize it is to go against our very nature in which deep down inside we know that dying is abnormal. You know how we know that dying is abnormal? Because it wasn't part of God's original design. You were not created to die. If not, you've got to read Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. This is part of the reason why Tim Keller, when he talks about this topic, he calls death the great interruption. It interrupts our relationship with others. It interrupts our relationship with the people we love. It's the same reason why Tim Keller calls uh, death the great division. Why? Because it divides our humanity. We are created as physical beings and non-physical beings. And dying separates that reality. There's nothing normal about dying. Tim Keller calls the, uh, death the great insult. Because there's nothing more offensive than to be created in the image of God with value and dignity and die and become dust. That's the great insult. He also calls it a great enemy. It is the one thing that we cannot defeat. It is the one thing that it doesn't matter what we do, how we do it, when we do it, you cannot escape the reality of death. It's the great enemy. He calls death, the, uh, death is hideous, frightening, cruel, and unusual. It is hideous because it destroys God's beautiful creation. It is frightening because we cannot escape it. It is cruel because it takes away the people we love. And it is unusual because it's not according to God's design. This is why I call death the great intruder. He comes into a life without permission and without warnings. He just shows up. And he takes everything that matters. People. See, I think that most of us here struggle at least just a little bit with this. And the tendency could be to try to normalize it. But I hope you know that normalizing it doesn't fix it. Even if you pretend that it's normal, it doesn't fix it because deep down inside we know that it's not normal. Another approach could be maybe not to normalize it but to, to be paralyzed by it. This is the attitude of those who, are, who, who don't know how to deal with this thing and then that, uh, um, adopt this fatalistic approach to life. If we're going to die, then why live? I hope you know that that's also not a good approach to deal with the fear of death. You might not be in the normalizing thing. You might not be in the paralyzing thing. But maybe, 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 just maybe, the one that we accept the most in our culture today is to become a slave of it. And this one I find really interesting because there are three different ways in which you can actually see if you are a slave of the fear of death. Number one is by becoming obsessed with the fear of death. In which the aim of life is one thing and one thing alone. To cheat death. How? By trying to live longer. I don't know if you've ever seen the show Limitless with the Australian actor Christopher Hemsworth. It's a really interesting show in which he's teaching uh, techniques and attitudes and practices and tools. All these things that will help us live better. So listen to what he says in the introduction of the show, and I quote, 
The goal is to offer fascinating insights into how we can all unlock our body's superpower to fight illness, perform better, and even reverse the aging process. Now, I have to be honest, I really love that show. <laughs> I found it super interesting and actually helpful to a certain degree. But the more I pay attention to that, the more I, my attention was caught by this, reversing the aging process. Now, I don't know if you know that actor, but he's a good-looking guy. Tall, full of muscles. Looks like me. <laughs> Just kidding. But as I think of him, I cannot... I cannot help but to think that a few years from now, he will have to confront the reality that it's simply impossible to reverse the aging process. That it's impossible to escape death. So developing an obsession with living longer is an slavery to the fear of death. And that doesn't work. The second attitude within the slavery is to deny death. It's to live life like if nothing is ever going to happen. It's to ignore the reality of the presence of death. It's to pretend. This is the problem. That it doesn't matter how much you deny it. It's still there. I call this the ostrich behavior. It's to stuck your head in the sand, thinking that if you can't see it, it goes away. Obsession doesn't work. Denial doesn't work. But then there's another option for some people, which is to repress it, repress the fear of death. And this is a group of people that know that we're all going to uh, die, but we live in such a way like we're never going to die. This is a group of people that we say, you only live once. Enjoy as much as you can. Do as much as you can. Conquer as much as you can. You know what the problem is with that? That you can have 20,000 experiences and you could have fun and fulfill all your dreams and desires and find distractions. But you are going to go home, you're going to close the door, you're going to shut the light off, and death is still there. So the question is, how do we deal with the fear of death? If normalizing it doesn't help... If being paralyzed by that doesn't help, if becoming a slave of it does not help, then what is the solution? And it is here where Good Friday is so needed. Because in Good Friday, once again, we are not only remembering that Jesus died, but in Good Friday, we find two things. How to cope with the reality of death. And how we live in light of the reality that we are going to die. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask three questions to the text. And I'm going to answer my questions like a good crazy person. <laughs> this is the question. What does Good Friday tell me about death not being normal? See, and the answer is super simple, at least to me. We know that dying is not normal because Jesus had to die to fix that problem. If he was normal, Jesus would have never had to die. Jesus had to expose himself, become a human being, and die on a cross to fix the very abnormality of our death. So the second question I have to ask myself, okay, if that is not normal and Jesus proves it, how does Jesus fix my problem with death. See, I am convinced that part of the reason why we always struggle with the fear of death, at least at times, is because we know deep down inside that everything that we have done wrong deserves punishment. 
See, I think that part of the reason why we struggle with the fear of death is because we all know deep down inside that we are guilty. Dying then confronts us with the reality of our guilt. But Good Friday is the great reminder that we don't have to die or be afraid of dying because Jesus died in our place. If you remember, the only reason why death exists is because sin exists. It's because when human beings sin, death was part of the punishment. And what Good Friday reminds us is that Jesus comes, becomes a human being, goes to the cross and dies so we don't have to. See, Good Friday is a good reminder that when Jesus died, is like a cosmic receipt that says, paid in full. Jesus paid it all. See, Jesus died to let us know that that is not normal. Jesus died to fix the problem with our death. But there's one more question we got to ask. How then do I live without being controlled by the fear of death? And here, if you remember, the author of Hebrews said this. That Jesus, by dying, broke the power of him, the devil... Who holds the power of death. And this is what the author is saying. One of the primary quote unquote ministries of the devil. Is to remind you that you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. And one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit. Is to remind you of Good Friday. In which he says that because Jesus died, it doesn't matter if you die. Your bill has been paid in full. Can you see why Good Friday is the only solution to the fear of death? Listen up, church. So profound and powerful is what Jesus did. That even if you die, the only thing that death could do for you is to make you better. Because if Jesus died, you will die. But because Jesus resurrected, you will resurrect. This is the reason why Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So this is the interesting thing, though. It is one thing to talk about Jesus' death. And it is another thing to talk about why is it that Jesus died. One thing is to talk about why Jesus, that Jesus died. And the other thing is to think about what cost him. What was the price that he was willing to pay so we don't die, at least we're not without hope. And I want you to think for a second... In that prayer that Jesus makes right before he goes to the cross. You remember that? He is a Gethsemane. He's sweating blood. He's kneeling before the Father. He knows what is coming and he says this. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. You know what's interesting about that prayer? That it tells you so much, much more than what you think. See, in that prayer, Jesus tells us that he had the opportunity to run. And he didn't. In that prayer, you see that Jesus did not have to go to the cross. And yet he chose to go to the cross. See, in that prayer, he tells you that you, he didn't have to do the things he did. And yet he chose to do the things that he did. Church, Jesus chose to suffer for you. Jesus chose to be whipped. Jesus 
chose to be humiliated. Jesus chose to bleed. Jesus chose for have, to have his uh, legs broken. Jesus chose to lose communion with the Father at least for a fragment of time. Jesus chose abandonment. Jesus chose to observe the, the cup of the wrath of God. Jesus chose the cross. The question is why? Because he was choosing you. He chose you before he chose himself. Have you done the same thing? Is he your choice? If that's the decision that you have already made, then communion is for you. Communion is for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and we understand that Jesus chose us first and that's why we respond to him. If you're not there yet, I'm going to ask you to please do not participate just yet. Take this as an opportunity for you to examine your relationship with God and see how much you value Jesus and what he did for you. But if you already understand and believe and have repented because you understand that Jesus chose you, this is for you. So I'm going to ask you to please take your cup. I'm going to ask you to please remove the side of the cup where you find the bread. And this is what the Bible says. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now you can remove the other side of the cup. The Bible says that in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Heavenly Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that just as these elements are entering into our digestive system, the good news of Good Friday enter into our souls. That just as this bread and this juice is entering into our system, the sacrificial, that little, literally sacrificial love of Jesus enter into our hearts and stay there. Lord, we don't want to just celebrate Good Friday. We want to be transformed by Good Friday. We don't want to just celebrate Good Friday. We want to lose the fear of death because of Good Friday. And I ask that you do that for us, please. In the name of Jesus, we pray and we all say,
wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus.